Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, guitar legend from the godly butthole surfers. Paul Leary is on the show. Paul has a brand new incredible solo record. There's a Buttle Surfers documentary in the works. More on all that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, hit up the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and an Instagram page and a Facebook page for Turned Out of Punk are all run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this show. And he will get the message to me. I'm on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, tell all your friends about it. Subscribe to it and rate it on the platform you're listening to it on. Uh, you can pick up a t-shirt over at turnedoutapunk.com. Thank you to people that do that, uh, by the way. And that is that. I also play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information about tours we have coming up. A couple records we have coming out over at fuckedup.cc. Uh, and, uh, you know, let that, let that fill all your curiosity about that over there. All right. On to today's show. And as I said off the top, a, a guitar God today on the show from the butthole surfers, Paul Leary is here for those of you who are familiar with the butthole surfers. I'm sure you're very excited for those of you who, who aren't, I, I really do think you need to check this band out. They are without hyperbole considered one of the greatest live bands ever. Uh, I remember actually, you know, and I, I bring this up, but, but walking with, uh, Opie from negative approach, Chris Moore, obviously that's probably what I should call him now. Uh, and, uh, he was just telling me about seeing this band for the first time and just how transcendent it was and just how it really was one of the most powerful experiences he ever had seeing a band live. And you hear this time and time again from different people that saw them or, People that were scared shitless by the experience. It goes, uh, I guess, either way with this band. And this conversation, uh, Paul touches on both, I think, both aspects of the band as well. Uh, as I said, also off the top, Paul has a really cool new solo record. Well, came out last year. It is available on the uh, Shimmy Disc label. And uh, once again, a phenomenal record, really all over the map. It's hard to kind of put into a genre. But uh, they do a van. He does a Vandals cover, and he also uh, has, you know, <laughs> that's all you need to know. There's a Vandals cover on this record that that blew my mind when I first saw it. But it makes sense when you hear him talk about it in the interview. Anyway, I'm not going to spoil anymore. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, that is that. Once again, you can find out more information about this Butthole Surfers documentary over at ButtholeSurfersMovie.com. And there's ways to contribute to help that project uh, come to light. And I think I think they're actually working on it right now, though. You can pick up a T-shirt and all that kind of stuff over there as well. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait till this documentary comes out. Google. <laughs> Google, YouTube, whatever you need to do to see some footage of this band playing live. Because, ooh, it's a mind bender. All right. That is it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the great Paul Leary. On Turned Out of Punk. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, as I spared you from before we got on air, I'm a huge fan. And I think, you know, you're obviously one of the most important guitar players to not just punk music, but I think just like rock and roll in general after a certain point. So to be able to pick your brain about not just your guitar playing, but being involved in one of the most fascinating bands to ever emerge from rock and roll is a big thrill for me. Right on. I, I got to start it off though, the way they all start off, which is Paul, how'd you get into punk from the first time you ever came across it? Oh, I was going to college in San Antonio at Trinity university. And, um, there was this other guy going to Trinity who had like spiky hair and a black leather jacket. So I thought, oh, that guy, I need to get to know that guy. And it turned out to be uh, Gibby. And uh, he was he was listening to, to punk and new wave. And I hadn't really been exposed to a whole lot of it back then. And, and so I started listening to it and immediately just fell in love with it. You know, I was, you know, punk back then was like Black Flag, Meat Puppets, Discharge, all that, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just fell for it hook, line and sinker. 
Uh, do you have any kind of awareness of that Sex Pistols show that had happened a few years kind of prior to that? Because it was like, you know, obviously. Ghost, I was there. You were at that show. At Randy's Rodeo in San yeah. Antonio, yes. <laughs> what are your memories of that show? Obviously, that's one of the most, you know, fabled uh, shows of all time. Yeah, I was super excited for that show. And, I, and, and then I get there and it was kind of freaked out by the spectacle because Randy's Rodeo is a country western kind of a, a place and, and very strange place for a punk rock show. And there's all these, they brought a big entourage. There, so there were people with safety pins in their faces and all that kind of stuff. And the fellow, the, the friend of mine that I went with spent the whole night throwing beer cans at Sid Vicious. And I, I don't think I ever really forgave him for that because I, I just thought that was a stupid thing to do. But, well, is that the guy? And he hits, he hits them right in the face with one of them, right? Like that's the infamous thing. Yeah, that that was probably that was probably George. Wow! Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, not laughing at Sid's misfortune because he got pretty busted up by that can. But that is like, you know, that's like the guy yelling Judas at Bob Dylan when he played Electric for the first time. What brought you to that show? Like, what kind of music were you listening to up until that point? Oh. Well, you know, by the time the Sex Pistols came to San Antonio, I was listening to the Sex Pistols. You know, I had their album and was excited about it. But prior to all that, gosh, it was, you know, probably Pink Floyd and Todd Rundgren. And uh, I just found music to be pretty boring in general around that time. And so when punk came along, it was just a fresh slap in the face. It's like, oh, that's what I've been missing out on. <laughs> yeah, you kind of, I kind of hear that on the show that this was uh, like, there's a generation of people that are kind of waiting for this to happen. Like you're saying, there's there's things you're grasping at, be it Roxy Music or the first Pink Floyd record or things like that. When punk finally hits, it, it's almost like a, a breath of air kind of coming into the room. Yeah, it's like you'd be listening to, to Boz Skaggs for a couple of years. Punk, punk was pretty nice. <laughs> was there any kind of like... You know, obviously, like, you know, 13 floor elevators in, in Austin and things like that. But, like, was there kind of like a garage rock tradition in San Antonio at all prior to this stuff happening? There wasn't any kind of tradition in San Antonio. You know, it was a it's a heavy metal town. It's always been a heavy metal town. You know, the metal bands would start their tours in San Antonio, the, you know, for the momentum. And, uh, you know, I played in garage bands as a kid growing up, but, you know, we never played out public or anything like that yeah yeah like it feels like punk was like the first time kids actually had permission to start playing out and start doing that kind of stuff yeah and there was a, a scene and stuff you could you know you could print up flyers and you could show up at a show even if you weren't supposed to play you could probably play anyway and that's kind of what what we did were there any kind of shows prior to that sex puzzle show that were kind of like flying the banner of punk locally that that was the, the first for san antonio I can't remember if Black Flag came after. I'm pretty sure Black Flag came through after that, but uh, and, and they may not have even stopped in San Antonio. You know, if you wanted to see a good show, you had to drive 70 miles north to Austin, and that's where all the fun was. <laughs> well, it, yeah, because it kind of feels like that Sex Puzzle show. It, it's it's like a fabled, like one of those shows where there's like, you know, yourself or Kathy Valentine or the people from the Skunks. Like that was like a ground zero moment. Yeah, you know, uh, although my, my love for the Sex Pistols, I, I still love that band and everything, but it's, it hasn't aged as well in my mind as some of the other acts. Well, I think that's the cool thing, though, is it's it's that energy that where you take it, right? Like the Go-Go's or Butthole Surfers or, you know, like all the other stuff that kind of comes out of it. It's like... It wasn't necessarily the, the the music of the Sex Pistols. It was almost like the permission it gave all the kids to kind of do way more interesting stuff in a lot of cases. And to me, it was, you know, more along that vein was was my first encounter with the Meat Puppets. You know, that was, that was more of a jolting moment for me than the Sex Pistols. Hmm. Uh, I, I came across a, a seven-inch single that they released, and it had a song called Out in the Gardener. Yeah. And it just, it just sounded like a train wreck. It was just like, what in the fuck are they doing? <laughs> it just, it was just bedlam and it, and I loved it. And it's like, gosh, you know, I want to do that. I could do that. And, and so that, that was a big inspiration to, to pick up a guitar after I'd put it down for four years in college and 
start playing again. So what were some of the other early San Antonio bands? Like I know Bang Gang and Marching Plague later on, or The Plague, I guess, before that. But like, who were some of the other sort of first wave bands that you remember seeing around town? I think, I think you, I think you covered all the bases. There. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then there was the Butthole Servers, but you know, we kind of got out of there fairly quickly because there wasn't much to do in San Antonio. So we, you know, went up to Austin and hung out for a little while until we got bored, and, and then went out to California. Yeah, you've always been described by people that have been on the show as being this kind of cult unto itself you know like it was it was even like a a separate thing from like larger punk scenes that were kind of happening at the at their time like but old servers kind of existed outside of everything well we didn't really play punk music but but we felt right at home in in the punk scene mm-hmm. so. well i think it's really interesting if you look at like you know that first tour you guys kind of do in 84 like the first sort of big national tour and you know you look at butthole surfers and kind of rem as sort of like the 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 two kind of extremes of where this music could go and both bands are kind of like happening at the same time as hardcore especially that first wave of hardcore is kind of dying off and people are looking for what's next you know and it's just like it's so fascinating these two bands doing completely different things obviously tied together in a lot of ways but you know it's it's just kind of popping off at the same time where people are desperately looking for whatever's going to be the next thing to kind of get on to and funny we kind of ended up uh moving to athens georgia for a little while and and we were we were near rem for a little for a little bit in our lives do you guys ever play together no never did but we would uh we would drive by michael stipe's house on the way to uh the pot dealer's house. So <laughs> we knew where he lived or where he had a house. I never saw him there. They were, you know, by the time we were in Athens, they were a pretty big band. Yeah. Well, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's obviously two different completely career paths that your, your bands take, but there is almost like this sort of, and I guess like whatever happens in Seattle where everything kind of explodes from there for a moment, it's kind of like these two worlds mixing together where it's sort of like the, the wildness of of butthole surfers kind of like i guess mitigated a little bit by the calmness of rem yeah, we used to we used to cover uh the one i love by rem that was always a fun <laughs> one to play <laughs> yeah there's been so many people that have come on the show and talked about just sort of this like lights on moment of seeing you guys for the first time you know like uh chris opie from negative approach talked about how when you guys came to detroit for the first time that was just like uh a show that just opened his eyes in, in how far you could kind of take the live experience. Well, Detroit was a, a good city for us. That was, uh, that was one of our first home away from home. You know, it was a little tough making it to Los Angeles. We did, we did all right in uh, San Francisco and Seattle and, and then New York, but the Detroit was, was really one of the first places that accepted us and we did well in Detroit. So always what? have fun memories of Detroit. What about DC? Because it's, DC seems to be a scene where they like didn't necessarily gravitate towards the theatrics. You know, famously, the Misfits didn't go over well in DC. Uh, you know, we did well in DC. We played a number of times at the old 930 Club and then at the new 930 Club. Uh, one of my favorite evenings at the 930 Club was about two or three songs into our set. They shut us down and evacuated the building for a fire. <laughs> It's, uh, there was a fire in the building somewhere. What it didn't have anything to do with our show or anything. But in, I don't know if you were you ever. Did you ever go to the nine thirty club? Not not the old nine thirty club. It was uh, if when you exited the back into the alley, it was right next to the back entrance to the Ford Theater. So <laughs> you know, and you'd load your equipment out. You were right there where you know Booth came running out after shooting Abe Lincoln. Gosh, talk about an infamous uh, little uh, backstage area. Yeah, that was that was a fun place, and I remember you know we at the uh, I guess it was the new nine thirty club. I don't the lady that booked us. I don't think really liked us that much because we got in a big argument over beer. Uh, you, you know there was you know five minutes before we we're supposed to go on. They still haven't given us any beer, and I mean that was we needed beer, and, yeah. and I think you know we, we started whining and whining, and she came back and said it's not my job to get you all drunk, and we were like oh yes it is. We're not playing until we are. <laughs> <laughs> no brew no show that's in the rider 
Um, I guess going back early on, I've heard you talk in other interviews about SPK being an influence. And where are you kind of hearing about this sort of more obscure stuff that was, you know, like, obviously you're in the Sex Pistols right when it's happening. So you're, you've got your ear to the ground. But like, where was this sort of discovery coming for, for you from? Uh, Timmy probably turned me on to SPK, but I love that album. I probably wore out three copies of that of that album. <laughs> you know, and it, it's really horrible, horrible music. But I, I think that was kind of the point. Yeah, yeah. There's like I think that's the the beautiful thing about that first kind of wave of punk stuff that's happening, where there's you know throbbing gristle and SPK and like all these groups that are like. They're, they're not trying to make pretty music. They're not trying to make commercial music. They're just like, you know, it's, it's doing something completely new for, for, I guess, pop music to broadly put it. But in, within that, there was, there was always an element of beauty. It was just mm -hmm. kind of hard to put your thumb on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Throbbing, throbbing gristle was another, fa you know, favorite of mine. And I just, I just love that stuff. The hamburger lady. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny. I just uh, interviewed uh, Stephen Page from the Bare Naked Ladies, and he was talking about how influenced they were, or he was at least, by Throbbing Gristle. It's amazing to think about where this band went with their influence. You know, they, a band that you know never, never really broke through on any sort of mainstream level, has had all sorts of impact all these years later. I think Genesis would be very happy to know that. Yeah, he actually came to our last show in New York. I think he introduced us from the stage. So you know, I was like blown away that he'd even heard of us <laughs> where well like i guess that's the thing about but old surfers is it became you know and still is you know like a cult of of people they got to see it or experience it and like obviously playing Lollapalooza and playing like a lot more of these bigger shows you got out there but it, it's just like a a group that has left like an indelible impression on music forever we managed to piss a few people off too <laughs> yeah. without even really, without really even trying. I, you know, like our first record, we had a song called something and it had lyrics about kicked her in the teeth. She was out the door and boy, that upset some people, you know, and it's, it's like, to me, it was like, it was like a movie, you know, it's like a character in a movie. You know, if you play a character in a movie, that doesn't make you like that person. It just, that's just what you're portraying. And, uh, that was a song that came from, you know, having my heart ripped to shreds by my college girlfriend. And, uh, you know, I'd never kicked a woman in the teeth or anywhere else in my life, but that upset a lot of people. And uh, we, we did a show in New York that was supposed to be a benefit for AIDS and uh, ice tea and body count came on stage at the end of the night and started smashing up microphones. And so they ended up losing money and, and the blame went squarely on us. So we, so that pissed off a lot of people and, and then we we split with our record label Touch and Go, and that pissed off, you know, probably half the rest of our fan base at that point. So we we were just pissing people off left and right before we even got to our you know hit song Pepper. So, well, that that's the that's the uh, the way it has to be in punk in a lot of ways, right? Like it's there's no there's no trajectory, so you kind of have to like burn your own path by any means necessary at a certain point in order to kind of yeah and and burn your bridges on the you know on the way out too which we did very well well i wanted to ask like where was you know obviously with the shotgun on stage especially at big festivals and big events like did that ever go poorly like i could only imagine like now that would never it, I, it could never it could well have gone poorly i mean that that shotgun was incredibly violent you know it was a 12 gauge pump shotgun uh, it was shooting what's called popper loads, which are, are like blanks, but they're used to train dogs and they're actually louder and more violent sounding than a real shotgun shell. And it would shred a beer can from 10 feet away. And, uh, you know, I can, I can remember uh, on the first Lollapalooza tour, I was playing a guitar solo and I had my eyes closed and I was getting into it. All of a sudden I looked down and there's Gibby and Susie from Susie and the Banshees and they're wrestling over the shotgun and it's pointed right at my head. Oh. Man, I jumped like it was a rattlesnake. Yeah, but you know, it, it, indoors shooting that thing at a club indoors was was really pretty spectacular. And it got to the point where, you know, during sound check, we'd always get a visit from the fire department that would want to come and look at our shotgun and everything else. And then they'd always get it back to us and say, "Okay, have at it." And you know, we were lighting the stage on fire every night. And and you know, we could have we could have been White Snake. Yeah. Yeah, that's the reality, right? Like there's 
all these things are are amazing until they're not amazing and then it becomes like a cautionary tale and it just feel it feels like that's the thing about extreme art you know like you know like there's been i've had some people on who are performance artists and stuff like that and i think that's what butthole surfers were verging on at a certain point where you know like we're saying about spk and and these bands like even though there's moments of beauty to it it's not necessarily meant to be a hundred percent a pleasant experience you know even for the people making it no and, it, and it's highly conceptual yeah and I, I i love conceptual art in general especially you know with dada and, and that kind of stuff where was that influence coming from? Like, do you remember, was there like uh, any sort of art movements that you were exposed to as a kid growing up or, or in San Antonio? Was there anything like that performance art wise? I, I studied art in college and yeah. uh, I studied abstract painting, which I just loved. And uh, somehow I got, you know, into reading about Eve Klein and his zones of immaterial pictorial sensitivity that had to be purchased with gold leaves on the banks of the Seine River and the had to throw the gold leaf into the river while the purchaser burned his receipt. And the, you know, the nude women covered in paint, slinging themselves on canvases at his discretion. And I just thought all that stuff was just fantastic. So we were, we, we were more of a, a performance band than a, than a rock band. Our earliest shows were at, at art galleries. Hmm. You know, we played, a, we played a show or two in, in art galleries in San Antonio before we ventured out and started playing the punk rock clubs. What about like, were there any bands that were kind of on that same sort of take, like stick men with ray guns or any of those sorts of bands, or were they much more kind of straightforward in their approach in the way you guys were kind of looking at it? Uh, stick men with ray guns was not theatrical, but they were the real deal and they were scary. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, first, first time I saw stick man, I got right up in front of Bobby Sox and I was just loving it and started yelling something. And next thing I know, he looks at me and just kicked me in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> And then, then, you know, they were opening up for us, in fact. And I was, you know, watching them before before we came on. And then after the show, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Paul. I didn't know that was you when I kicked you in the balls. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you always hear about Bobby Sox is that it was, you know, never, never fake. And it was it was never fake. What about like when you guys started going on tour and, and kind of getting out and playing? Were there other bands that you felt you know, like kindred spirits with it all, or is it always kind of like, you know, on your own? Well, I kind of felt kindred spirits a little bit with the vandals because I loved Mohawk town. Yeah. And we got, to, we got to play with them one, we got to play with them one time and that was pretty, pretty memorable. But, uh, uh I don't know. There was a few bands that we were kind of kindred with like uh fright wig from San Francisco. And, uh, I feel dumb for not being able to, remember some of those bands right now my, my memories of, of that whole period are, are kind of fuzzy yeah i can imagine <laughs> well, it seems like acid and and you know mind altering drugs in general but like you know but acid and lsd and sort of like psychedelia was an influence on the band early on was that something that you know i still find texas is one of the hardest partying states that you go to because the people that party you know, there's a little more edge to the party at, at all times and stuff like that. Was that like something that was around you in college? Like that kind of culture? Is that like a holdover that, you know, you're kind of seeing from the sixties that's still around at that point? Yeah, not so much in college, but like, like I say, once I left San Antonio and, and Austin was the hard party in town. Yeah. So we, we kind of, we went to Austin and then stayed there for a while. You know, it, it we couldn't really afford drugs in those days. You know, we were doing good to get beer and pot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was, and you know, still, I think weed is, is something that fuels a lot of bands on tour. And I think it continues to provide a lot of, uh, medication and meditation for bands on the road. Yeah. It's, it's always astounding me. You know, I, I do a lot of production work and I, I encounter a lot of bands and a lot of younger bands. And it amazes me when these younger bands just don't smoke pot. It's like, why are you in music? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess maybe you, you have your pot years. You come to them a little bit later. I didn't start smoking until I turned 30. So, you know, it was, uh, it's something I, I had to grow into, I think a little bit. Wow. Yeah. I was like 15 or something. Well, uh, you brought up the Vandals. You cover Vandals on the new record, and Josh Freese, of course, plays with you yeah. on the new record, too. So, yeah, there, it, it, it's a band that I never 
would have associated with butthole surfers in any sort of way until kind of listen to the new album well you know there was kind of like two kinds of punk rock back then there was the serious punk rock that had you know a message and a point and they were serious about it and then there were bands like vandals and butthole servers that just didn't give a fuck <laughs> just, we were we had no message you know the, the message was you know too stupid <laughs> i also find like bands that are like humorous and and funny always have like a an edgier crowd on the west coast than they do on the east coast you know like going back to the like you know your stories about the dickies playing in la and how violent some of those shows were or you know uh, the vandals you know later on too where like yeah just because the music has a, a funny kind of edge to the lyrics doesn't necessarily mean the everyone's laughing it up in the crowd <laughs> this thing about violence and and on the west coast uh, before before gibby and i were in the butthole servers we went out to los angeles and we, we went to the whiskey a go-go to see x and uh, we we're hanging out outside the the whiskey, and there was this female band called Castration Squad. And they yes. were outside; hand, they were handing out flyers for their show, and they were picking on people that they didn't think were dressed appropriately. And uh, Gibby and I were two of those people, and I thought I thought we were going to get castrated that night. That was pretty scary. <laughs> oh, that's wild! That's it's so funny because that's like Alice Bag's band and stuff. Like that's amazing. Like, Al, the Alice Bag band. I, that's another great one. So like, yeah, like I wanted to ask you about that first tour you guys kind of do before Butthole Surfers. Like, were you already playing shows under all those original names at that point back in San Antonio? Um, well, in for the first few months we were playing in Austin, you know, when we didn't start out as the Butthole Surfers. I think we were like the Dick, the Dick Clark Five, I think was the what we first called ourselves. And then we were the Dick Gas Five. And then we were the ashtray baby heads and then nine foot worm makes own food. A hundred foot it worm was, makes own food at, at one point. At least that's the bootleg that came out at some point. And that's a bootleg that had that, that wasn't us, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was us, but that wasn't our title. Um, but eventually, you know, it, the, the whole it, kind of the point of playing music was to come up with a stupid band name and then just play rotten, horrible music and, and then change the name so people wouldn't know that they're getting into you know rotten horrible music again but uh the, the big boys uh, were a band in austin that would let us open up for them you know we could just show up and play and uh one night their bass player chris gates was introducing us to the crowd and he he didn't remember what we were calling ourselves that night but he knew we had a song called butthole surfers so he called us the butthole surfers and at the end of the night the club gave us 50 bucks so it's like all right we've got our name we're getting rich that's awesome well I, I think it's it's uh you know that austin scene like you mentioned the big boys and of course like the dicks from from there too like it's uh it's kind of cool all the different places people were taking this kind of music at that point yeah everybody had their own little scene you know and every, every scene had their own little fanzine or two and you know it's Every city wanted to be like maximum rock and roll. <laughs> I, I remember going to see Tim Yohannan in, in San Francisco and uh, being just blown away with myself for being able to get to see the great Tim Yohannan and hang out with you know the maximum rock and roll people. And we're sitting there talking in his living room, and and in walks this incredible looking woman. And I was just my jaw hit the floor, and I was like, oh my god, how does how do these guys get this wonderful, wonderfully attractive? incredible woman hanging out with him and it looked like she was working for him or something and and uh, later find out that was uh cecilia the drummer for fright week oh yeah and and then uh, you know we we became good friends and uh, that was a, that was a lot of fun she was she was a heck of a lot of fun it's funny that max rock and roll remained that important you know right up until i guess the internet kind of nullified the need for this in that sort of way but like it was that kind of institutional paper magazine whatever i guess cross between the two like for for generation after generation of kids like how many kids use that book your own fucking life tour to book their first tours with their bands like <laughs> it, it was it was accessible media like you know an accessible mass media yeah let me tell you touring back then was different you know before cell phones you know you'd have to you know, you know, you'd have a show in a town, and so you pull up into the town, and then you 
look for a pay phone so you can call up and says, you know, where are we going? What's, you know, the address. And you have to pull out a big roadmap and figure out how to get there. And it's God, the kids have it so easy today. You know, they can just have type it into the phone and phone takes them right there. Cell phones, all of that stuff. Well, who, who kind of gave you guys like the, the, you know, the numbers to get on the road at first. Like, obviously there's that story about DOA giving it to black flag and then black flag disseminating it out. But like, cause you're one of the first bands to kind of really start doing it on the road like that. Like, where did you guys get inspiration to start touring from? Well, um, you just couldn't hang around in one town for very long. And I don't even know how he came up with shows. You know, Gibby was booking our shows and he kept a little notebook and list of dates. And sometimes we'd show up a day late. <laughs> sometimes our, our van would break down and we'd be stuck somewhere for a week. And we, we were pathetic. <laughs> yeah. Pinkus, when he was on the show, talked about how, when you guys would tour, sometimes you just like wind up living in a town for an extended period of time afterwards. Until... Yeah. To me, to me, none of it ever seemed like a tour. It's just a way of life. We were, yeah, we were just nomads and we would go and then, you know, when people started getting their fill of us, we'd move on. <laughs> but that's, that is such like an inspiration, even for the way bands, some bands do it today, you know, like this sort of like traveler lifestyle of a band, but just the thing was that you guys also could write incredible songs too. So it wasn't a complete waste of everyone's time. <laughs> I wish we were writing incredible songs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like the fact that we're still talking about them all these years later and the fact that there's still bands taking inspiration from you guys, I think is a testament to, you know, how great the songs were. You know, I think that's like it's, something. It's pretty hard to, co to comprehend, but yeah, it's, Sometimes I feel like I'm on candid camera. Like you really, you really thought you were successful off of that crap. No way. <laughs> but that's the, that's the cool thing, right? Like up until the generation of bands we're talking about, there were very few bands that were able to kind of make a sustainable living for themselves on any level doing art the way they wanted to do art. You know, like you're kind of like the first generation of bands that that found a way to kind of do it where you didn't have to compromise to become ultra successful but at the same time you could still like tour the world right like you know and, and, and have top top 10 hits yeah we did a lot of touring of the world before you know we were really making money and it was just always amazing that i could wake up in the morning and not know what country i'm in and you know Sometimes we'd fall asleep on a train in Europe and miss our station and, and literally have no idea what country we were in. And When was the first time you guys went to Japan? Oh, uh, gosh, that must have been like 91 or something like that. And then, oh, man, that was a lot of fun. I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, but that country has the best food in the world. Yes. And you play a show and it's like seven o'clock in the evening. And so you're, you're done early. And then the promoter takes you to his favorite restaurant. And it's just like, Oh, I wanted to stay there. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the only, you know, and I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of cannabis, but I could forgo cannabis to live in Japan. Yeah. That's uh, I don't think we stumbled across any until our last night in Tokyo. And well, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> I remember being hung over and, you know, we, we did some of our uh, transportation by train. You know, they've got those super fast bullet trains and they're really sleek and fun and everything. You show up at the platform one morning and I'm all hung over and I'm thirsty as hell. I just wanted some water and I'm looking for a vending machine and there it is. And it's got cans of liquid and I put my money in and punch what I think looks like water. And it turned out to be a can of scotch. <laughs> You can buy scotch and beer from vending machines on the street in Japan. Yep. It's, it is definitely a, uh, the, the vending machine culture is very evolved. You know, like the, the, uh, I think I saw a record vending machine when I was in Japan too. So I was like, this is definitely, this is the future. The future is now. Yeah. They, they've got Holland beat. I was always amazed, you know, and you go to Amsterdam and there's that place downtown where it's like a wall of, yeah. of vending where you get tip corn and shawarma and whatever greasy burger you know, lose food. <laughs> yeah. Anything you want right out of a, a little machine. 
Yeah, no, it definitely. Uh, I, the food's a lot better in Japan that's coming out of those vending machines than it was at that place in Holland. I definitely have made the mistake of dying yeah, there. Yeah, every, everything is. <laughs> um, the first time you guys go to San Francisco, you know, famously the, the van breaks down in front of the tool and die. Uh, do you remember where you were supposed to be going to play there that night instead? We'd been, we'd been in Los Angeles for a while and finally decided to, as our drummer, Scott Matthews put it, it was time to blow for Frisco. And so we got in the van and the van was breaking down. I mean, it had a rusty gas tank and it was always clogging the fuel filter. And so I was always having to stop and take the fuel filter out and blow the gas and the crud out of there and put it back on. And we barely made it to San Francisco. We're on the Bay bridge going into San Francisco and it's like rush hour and a million cars. And all of a sudden our, you know, going up the hill to the bridge, our fans start sputtering and we're like, Oh my God, if we don't make it to the top, we're going to die. And it gets barely to the top and the engine dies completely. And it's like inching forward and inching forward. And finally it's pointing downhill again. We coasted all the way down the hill and rolled off the first exit. And the van just rolled to a stop in front of the tool and die. And for about 10 seconds, we're like, what the hell do we do now? You know, we didn't, we didn't know anybody. There was, you know, we didn't have any money. And we see some kids loading up van equipment into the tool and die. They're, you know, punk rocks, punk rockers with mohawks and stuff, loading drum kits. And so we started unloading our stuff too. And a woman comes out of there and says, who are you guys? And we're like, we're the butthole servers. Well, you're not playing here. And, well, we started almost crying and begging. So she let us play three songs. And uh, we played our three songs, and the, and the Dead Kennedys were in attendance. I think they ended up playing at the end of the night. But Biafra took to us on the spot, and that's how we got our first record deal, Alternative Tentacles, thanks to a broken-down van. So, like, were you supposed to be playing, like, a, a completely separate show, and then coincidentally there's another punk show there? I don't night? know. I'm not even sure we really had a show. <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking. I think the main, well, I think the main reason for going to San Francisco is we were hungry and we heard they had soup kitchens and they did. And we took full advantage. I mean, you could eat for, for like five days a week for free. You know, there was the church of John Coltrane where they had an altar of John Coltrane and you could eat free there if you washed your own dishes. And there was another place where, they would serve you food with waiters and the waiters would dress as trees. Whoa. In San Francisco. Was it like a religious thing or is it like a, a I think it was more of an, an acid thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tree, tree, branches and leaves and the whole nine yards. Wow. That is, that is, that is definitely service at that spot. But and it's fun because, you know, you'd see there'd be a line to get into the soup kitchen and you'd go to go to get in line and see all your friends hanging out there. Well, well the, you know, there's people that brought up this idea on the show before of of living your art, you know, and like how, you know, there's this idea of like, you know, like, is it truly, you know, a, a form of self-expression if you're not like living it 100 percent without a safety net and like you know, you're this band that's like literally at soup kitchens to be able to do this, you know, like there's this idea that like what you're doing is bigger than like, obviously servers at tree restaurant aside, but like, I mean, for the most part, like it's not as comfortable as a lot of people's existences are, especially in music. No, we lost a lot of bass players for that very reason. You know, they would just wake up some morning and go, why are you doing this? <laughs> I mean, we it took us like a, a couple of years to save up enough money to buy sleeping bags. You know, up until then we were just sleeping on people's bare floors. And so we were sick all the time. You know, I remember Gibby got a flu one time and it lasted over six months. Wow. And then uh, we saved up and we bought sleeping bags for the band and then we all got healthier because of it. So that was a, a big turning point for the band. Yeah. Like, I don't think people appreciate unless they're, they're on the road. And obviously, like, as you say, it's a lot more comfortable doing it these days uh by and large for for every band certainly than what you're describing but like how cold and damp things are when you're on the road and like without a sleeping bag how completely insufferable that must have been yeah waking up next to a cat box every morning i mean not every morning but you know yeah. you never knew what you're gonna wake up next to 
like was it such a gradual because like obviously when the band stops playing even in the more recent times you know like the the appreciation of the band had grown immensely and you're certainly not crashing on people's floors near cat boxes but like was there a moment where things shifted for for you or is it like happening so gradually over time that it's almost imperceptible when you're living in it it was fairly gradual i, I remember a big step was getting our first tour bus and man was it a piece of shit <laughs> you know, broken air conditioner the whole nine yards and this the, the guy driving it was this horrible racist i mean we're we get it a downtown Detroit in traffic and he's yelling the n-word out the window of a bus we're just like oh my god hey you know that's there's a lot of Vietnam veterans that drive buses you know that's a good occupation for a lot of those people and you know we've had some good ones and we had we had this one bus driver that he, he didn't know that his CB radio was piped through to the back lounge through the stereo and we'd be listening to music and every once in a while we'd hear him start talking and and you can hear the other truck saying, "What's the name of the band?" And they, Matt Hall Surfers. You know, I don't, I don't like their music, but they pay the bills. <laughs> one night after a show, we're like driving, the, you know, somewhere in the west, down some super straight deserted highway, and we're in the back lounge, and all of a sudden the bus driver walks back there, and he's like looking around and talking. It's like, "Who's driving the bus?" And he's like, "Nobody." <laughs> I look out the front, we're tooling down 70 miles an hour down the highway with nobody in the driver's seat. <laughs> uh, did you, was it ever like, did you ever get bus drivers that wanted to party with you guys because, you know, you do have no. that reputation? No. <laughs> no, they, thank God for that. Because then they, yeah. we wouldn't, we wouldn't have put up with that. No, I can imagine. Um, it, why did the second record n not wind up coming out on Alternative Tentacles? Like, I know there, there was all the issues with the first album, but, like, well, the second record well, was actually, originally... Actually, two albums came out on the Alternative Tentacles, two EPs. You yeah, know, the EPs. Was the, the Brown Reason to Live, and then there was the PCPP EP, which was a live kind of version of it. And then, uh, at some point, I can remember calling up... I can't remember who was running Alternative Tentacles at the time, but I was, I was curious as to when we might get paid for some of those records. And then they... They told me over the phone, well, we would have paid you, but we needed that money to finance the next Death, Dead Kennedys album. And all yeah. of a sudden, a little bell went off in my head. It's like, that's what I'm doing this for? That, that just really didn't float with me too well. And uh, so, so Touch and Go was interested, and that worked out really well for us. That was a swell label for us until we, until we uh, came to differences. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, I guess, when you do ultimately wind up signing with with major labels, and now it's changed too. But because you know it, the handshake deal is amazing until it's not amazing, and when you have everything in writing and there's like it's clearly defined, then at least you know how you're going to get fucked over. You know, like it's like yeah, exactly. You know, you get a fifty page record contract with a major label, and, and they're not going to do any of that stuff they promised to do. No. But it'll be in writing, you know. You can see on which it's which writing. <laughs> yeah, that's find it, that, out how much it'll cost to sue them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? But I guess like by the time you're signing a Capitol Records, did you kind of feel like that was, you know, that's the only place it could go, or like, because like it feels like the Buttle Surfers was always a trajectory, at least from the outside. Like it looks like, you know, where it winds up is it's kind of like has to go that way. You know, there's no other alternative path it could be. We, you know, we were kind of living on the road, and next thing you know, it, uh, some I'm being told that we were the uh, Billboard magazine had us listed as the top grossing independent touring act, and I had no idea. It's like, wow, that sounds pretty impressive. You know, it's like I ought to be richer or something. You know, <laughs> from that. But once once we got once we were doing that well on the road then then the major labels were all interested and uh, we talked with columbia and geffen and and then when capital came along i mean shoot that that was a hoot i mean fucking capital records the beatles dean martin grand funk railroad glenn campbell i mean my god be on the label with those guys are you kidding me i mean I had to do that yeah and it, it's not like there were a lot of bands on capital that kind of had 
you know, like not that there's any band that would be doing what you guys are doing, but like it certainly no, isn't. no, no. And they had no idea what to do with us, and so they left us alone. You know, yeah. they they were good. They were good enough to hook us up with John Paul Jones to produce an album, and uh, later with Steve Steve Thompson. But um, you know, we we put out uh, Independent Worm Saloon, and it it had like a mild radio hit in Who Was in My Room Last Night, and still the record label kind of left us alone to our own devices they had no guidance for us and they didn't even get us or anything and and then pepper came out and it's a big hit and next thing you know there's a line around the block of people from the label telling us what to do and how to do it and so it got very uncomfortable it was it was better before the hit yeah well um you know john paul jones seems like he would have been really cool like he did all that he did the diamanda gallus records of course and and tour with her and stuff but he like he seems like someone who you know has got a real obviously an amazing ear for music but someone who's like into kind of you know not most mainstream stuff oh yeah and, and he's a god he's a, a lot of fun to work with and i learned as a producer i learned a lot from him you know he was the first producer we ever had and i you know i knew i was kind of producing butthole surfers records but i didn't really know what a producer was and we get with John Paul Jones and, and he is on top of everything. You know, he, uh, he picked the studio that we were to go to and he came down and spent a couple of weeks with us in our practice studio in Austin. And he would come to our practices and listen and make notes and jam with us sometimes. And it was like, holy cow, we're jamming with John Paul fucking Jones. <laughs> and, and then we get to the studio and you know, you rarely saw him outside of the control room. He was there for every note that went down and he, you know, he, he was super attentive and, and that was impressive to me. Does that inform the approach you take to producing records? Like after that point? Yeah. And, you know, after that, you know, we had, we were also worked with Steve Thompson who did pepper and, and he was like that too. He was extremely on top of it. And then our next producer was, um, um, Bob uh, Cavallo, who had done like Green Day and that kind of stuff, and you know, won Grammy for Best Producer of the Year and, and that kind of shit. And we get to the studio, and he's not there. And you know, about two days later, he shows up and wants to listen to music for like 10 minutes. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to my daughter's dance recital, I'll come back next Tuesday. And, and, and it's like, ah, oh, so this is going to be up to me again. And, and, <laughs> And, but he's a fantastic freaking producer. I mean, it's, you can't argue with the results. So, you know, he's, he's one of the best there is. But it's, to me, you know, the whole point of doing it is to be there and to craft it and, and listen to every note and decide what works and what doesn't and, and actually be part of molding the art. Yeah. Well, I guess there's like also, you know, like you're saying, like if you weren't there with the butthole surfers, like, you know, there's certain bands that, that approach just won't work with. Like there's certain artists that you need to be there to make sure they're actually in the room to record the record. Yeah. A lot of bands don't like being in the studio. No. You know, they, they, they dread going into the studio and that always blows me away because, you know, I love the studio when you're in the studio, that's the one place where you can dictate how things go and you can, you can just, it's your world and, and the outside is shut out and you can do what you want and make things the way you want. And then the second you step out that door, all bets are off. I mean, mm. you just don't know what the fuck is going to happen once you leave the studio, you know, especially when you're on the road and there's so many things can go wrong and you're dealing with stuff all the time. That gets old. But being in the studio is, is fun. I, I guess it's like, you know, the, the one time though, that you're alone with your insecurities, you know, like when you're on the road, when you're playing those shows, you can kind of get caught up in the trappings of the whole experience. But when it's just you and the songs by yourself, like I can imagine for a lot of artists, that's when it becomes very exposing on, on, you know, how luck plays a huge role in this whole thing. It is a little weird to hear yourself playing back for the first few times. I, you know, I'm, I was freaked out by how our first record is like, that's what we sound like. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> was it different? Like, cause obviously, you know, it is such a, you know, the live show is such a important part of buttholes surfers. Like was your approach in the studio trying to capture the live experience or, or are you going into those records with a completely different kind of intention? 
the early on, in, early the, on I mean. in the early days when we when you know when we first started recording our own albums you know we bought a one inch eight track tape machine an old tube ampex that stood about eight feet tall and weighed a thousand pounds and uh bought a microphone and that was kind of about it you just plug the microphone straight into the back of the tape machine and and record a guitar part and then record drums over it and then blah you know so we were writing our songs that way. You know, the, the stuff that was on some of those albums was the very first time we'd ever played those notes. And we didn't even know what we were playing. It's just like the tape machine's rolling, do something. And you do it and then you'd be left trying to figure out what you did so you could play it live later on. Yeah. Um, early, that, that early stuff that I mentioned on that bootleg, like th- some of those songs are incredible on that seven inch, like that you had right early on. Was there ever any other type of band that you were going to try or is this was this kind of like what drove you to play guitar again and, and make this kind of music i'm not sure i understand the question well like like would you ever like have tried a, a more straightforward band you know something more kind of like rooted in power pop or in new wave or even even like punk or hardcore well i, I do all kind of stuff you know I, right now i'm working with a guy named cardi talkington and a few years ago, I couldn't imagine myself working with this kind of music, but you know, I kind of got snagged into it, and and now I'm loving it and having a really good time with it. But it's it's like uh, it's borderline weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's 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 not punk rock, and and then you know, I ended up you know working on Sublime, and that immediately kind of put me into a whole little niche over there, and uh, where I'm producing white guys doing reggae and i didn't know anything about reggae i still don't know anything about reggae i i love listening to it when it's on the on speakers but other than that i i couldn't tell you who or what about any of that stuff well like without with that sublime record you know it's like kind of like one of those defining records like you know those songs are just you know like you put them on at a party and they're they're ubiquitous for a generation of kids you know and like and it's you know, I th- imagine with that record, though, a lot of that producing that stuff was like making sure the band was in the room to record those songs and making sure you're capturing what they were trying to put out there at that period. Well, that was one of the last bands that I got to work with that actually had a budget, you know, mm. they had they had money from their label. And, and so they we were able to get all kinds of studio time and, and that kind of stuff. Um uh, it was never really a problem getting them to play because they love to play. And you, the, the thing was you get them set up to where they could play in the studio where it felt kind of live to them, but yet you had separated things out so you could record them and manipulate them. And uh, they would just show up drunk as a skunk at noon and, and play and they'd jam out on these songs for seven or eight minutes and then go play around a golf while I cut the tape up and make the eight minutes down to three minutes. And uh, they never said anything. Wow. I guess it is like what you were doing with Butthole Surfers early on, where you're just trying to capture what was coming out and then figure it out afterwards, you know, like just record it. It, You know, I was getting, getting hooked up with Sublime was incredibly lucky. That was like musically the, probably the luckiest thing that, that ever, you know, came upon me. I was, I was, you know, working on Meat Puppets albums, but that was blown up because the, heroin problems in the band heroin problem in the band hmm. and uh so that was difficult and i was out in, in tempe arizona working on an album with them and driving a rental car to the studio and listening to this punk rock station on the am band in phoenix and they played date rape by sublime like 50 times a day and i just loved it every time it came on i turned it up and loved the guitar solo and the whole feel and, and everything and and Lo and behold, the phone rings while I'm still at the hotel, and it's my agent wondering to know if I'd be interested in producing this band called Sublime. And I was like, "Oh hell yeah!" Were they fans? They must have been Butthole Surfers fans. Uh, they were, and uh, you know, they they'd started out recording the self-titled album with David Kahn, who's a, a spectacular producer, and you know, he did uh, uh, what I got. And they sent me this cassette tape. I'm still in the hotel in Tempe working with the Meat Puppets. And I get a cassette tape to listen to. And it's got these songs produced by David Kahn. I thought it was supposed to be a demo tape. And it was like, what I got. 
couple of other songs and I listened to them like, oh my God, you guys don't need me, you know, just do what you're doing. I mean, you'll, you'll be fine. And they're like, no, we're working with David Kahn. He won't do live drums. He wants drum loops on everything. And they wanted to have live drums. And so they liked the meat puppets and they liked the butthole surfers. And so that was my end for working with them. Yeah. Well, it's amazing too. Cause like, you know, like obviously being such a famous percussion uh, band too, with the butthole surfers, I imagine they're like, Oh yeah, we got to go with the band with the two drummers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I could talk to you forever. And anytime you want to come back on the show, Paul, please know the door is always open. Oh, well, I'm a ham. So just, you know, reach out. I'm just always in my studio farting around with music. I'll be back there in, in just a little bit, farting around some more. Well, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you on the new record, you've got, of course, the Gary Floyd revisited uh, track. What is what? was the inspiration of gary floyd the song originally and also i love the new arrangement of it on the new record oh thank you it's pretty stupid isn't it uh, well um, it just adds a whole new dimension to the song you know like i you know like that's it's 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 so cool to hear it in a new context like that yeah i was thinking that you know i wanted to do a version of that song that sounded like something that would be broadcast in an elevator you know like <laughs> elevator music yeah and and uh you know they have those back in the old days, like in the sixties and seventies, they would play this music in elevators and uh, there'd always be songs that would have like male choir singing and stuff. And I was always, I just always thought that was really cool. It was like hypnotic. And so I wanted to have that kind of a vibe on, on Gary Floyd. But um, you know, the Dicks were one of our favorite bands all time. And, and we loved playing with the Dicks, and when we weren't playing with them, we'd go see their shows. And Gary Floyd is just a hero to everybody in the state of Texas. And we were practicing one night and uh, started playing the song, and it didn't have any lyrics or anything. But and Gibby wasn't singing it, so I went up to the mic and just started screaming stuff, and I didn't know what I was screaming. And then afterwards, I think Gibby came and said, "What were you, were you singing about, Gary Floyd?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's what I was singing about, Gary Floyd." <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and then that kind of then the then it all fell together pretty quick. Uh, another band I wanted to ask you about that I forgot earlier is Culture Side. Uh, they're oh, yeah. from Houston, but they're another band that I think you know like was you know experimenting with the form a little bit. Did you ever play with them or see them? No, but I sure love that record. You know, yeah. we're an industrial band and <laughs> uh, uh, Houston Lawman. God, there's some wonderful songs. I, I love, uh, I can't remember the guy's name that did that stuff. That oh. he, he, had a he had a story about, uh, you know, they, they tried to shut him down and, and get to him and this and that. And then the, the last tactic they tried with him was uh, like Capitol Records called him up and offered him a record deal. <laughs> no, I'm not falling for that. <laughs> and uh. I, you know, I was, we were playing a show in, in Houston. Um, and, I wanted to go eat at uh, Leo's Mexican restaurant in Houston. It's where they took the picture of the Mexican food plate that's the center fold gate in Tres Hombres. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that album or yeah. not. But it's a wonderful picture of a plate of Mexican food. So I wanted to eat there. So I went there after sound check. And there's, you know, Billy Gibbons and ZZ Top stuff all over the walls and in the jukebox and everything like that. And I ate my meal. I was by myself and so I'm, I get up to go to the pay at the register in the front. And just as I'm walking out, in comes Billy Gibbons with uh, that guy from Culture Side. They were like hanging out together. <laughs> and I was just stunned. I, I stood there just petrified. And then I was like scrambling for a piece of paper. And, and uh, I go up to Billy sitting there with the Culture Side. And I'm like, I'm sorry to geek you out, Mr. Gibbons, but I, I love your, your music. Have for years, could you sign an autograph for me? And he was very nice about it. He said, "Sure." And while he's signing an autograph, the owner of Leo's comes out of the kitchen and walks up to me and asked me if I would sign an autograph for the cook in the kitchen. It's one of my <laughs> autographs. So, excuse, excuse me, Billy. I, I'll be right back to you here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. He must have been a butthole surfers fan too. Like you're so many stories, but like you're saying, he's, if he's in a culture, he, he, claim, he claimed his girlfriend. He claimed his girlfriend was a butthole surfer fan, <laughs> but I don't know. I ran into him, you know, a couple of, I had lunch, uh, lunch with him 
about a year ago. And that, that was a lot of fun. He remembered meeting me at Leo's Mexican restaurant. And then I met him somewhere else. And then we had lunch together and he's, he's a real swell guy. Yeah. No, there's a story that comes up on the show about him uh, meeting this band Fifang, like a, a hardcore band from Scandinavia on their way over to play a fest in Austin and coming out and jamming with Rocky Erickson at the fest and stuff like, yeah, he seems like a pretty, pretty down dude. He's hanging out with the culture side. That's pretty down. I had no idea. So, <laughs> uh, but this has been amazing, Paul. And anytime, you know, the door's always open. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and let me know when this comes out. I'll put it on my socials and stuff. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Paul will be back for a part two uh, at some point down the line because there's a lot more to talk to Paul about. Um, I should have probably also added that I was a little uh, out of it with uh, the COVID when we recorded this episode. So not quite as on the ball as I would have liked to have been that night and probably why it was a little bit short. Apologies, Paul. And once again, check out that documentary over there at butthole surfers, uh, dot, uh, sorry, butthole surfers movie.com and pick up Paul's, uh, latest, uh, solo record born stupid. Once again, you can check it out on all streaming services. I think all the vinyl is, is probably sold out by this point, but you can probably track it down on the secondary market a, a fantastic record. Uh, and, uh, well worth your time. Thank you for listening to this one coming up in a few short days. Uh, we're going to keep the hits coming with one of the other greatest guitarists kind of come out of hardcore, completely different world. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you can find two more diametrically opposed bands, uh, that kind of emerge around the same time than, than, uh, the next guest from the band SSD. Society System Decontrol, Al Brill will be on the show. And this, I don't want to, to overhype it for you, but this this is one of the ones. This is definitely an episode you need to hear. Uh, Al is one of the coolest of all time and is very open in this interview. And we touch on a lot of different things. And yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for you to hear this. There's a lot of people that know that this episode's coming who have been hitting me up on the regular to see when it's dropping. So I can now text them all back and tell them when it's coming out. And as I told you, that will be in a few short days, probably next Tuesday. It's a long one. So I'm going to have to spend the weekend editing it, I guess, down. Woo. Oh, I'm excited for this. I'm going to go listen to some SSD and get, get a little more uh, pumped up for this thing. Uh, all right. That is it. Remember as always black lives matter. The lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different sexualities and different identities and different nationalities and just knock all that fascist bullshit off because at the end of the day, these aren't political issues. These are basic human rights issues and people are entitled to be able to live their lives without fear of violence and hatred. Uh, this podcast also remains a podcast that supports people's choice of what they want to do with their reproductive systems. So it seems weird to have to keep saying it, but as we all know, especially in places like uh, Canada right now, these things are becoming political issues, which I never thought would happen again in my lifetime. I thought we were kind of past that point, but here we are. Um, get involved. If there's organizations out there doing positive things in this world that you think you can help out, be it by donating your time or your, your money or your support or whatever, uh, get involved, help bring about the change you want to see. It, it might, it might help make you feel better too. You know, who knows? And, and speaking about making yourself feel better, try producing your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast, uh, maybe not a podcast, but start, start something. Uh, if you don't see something in punk that you think should be there, make it. That's the best thing about this is you can do whatever you want to do. You know, this is the, this is the genre that gave us SSD and butthole surfers. So there's room for anything and everything. Um, uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking at those organs, you're not going to need them anymore. It's literally dead weight at that point. Just get it out of your body. Whew. Talked about some heavy stuff there. Uh, if you need to calm down, try meditation. 
I didn't believe in it. And now I try it and it works. And who am I to, to say no to that? So maybe try it. Maybe it'll work for you. And I think that's it. That's not what I say, right? Did I forget anything this week? If I forgot anything, I, I, I'm sorry. And uh, that is that. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And uh, stay safe out there. See you in the next episode.